you so much for Alan. Thank you for what you've been saying to him through your word. And I just pray that you give us eyes to see what you're doing, ears to hear what you're saying, and hearts that are open to what you're wanting to do in us today. Amen. Well, the, um, the reading and the passage that I'll be talking from and about is in Daniel uh, chapter 7, if you in your Bible, and I'm just going to read from Daniel 7, uh, verse 1, through to uh, verse um, 14. And um, when you get into what this chapter's about, um, that will probably be enough for you. Um, chapter 7 and verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream, and visions passed through his mind as he was lying on his bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. And Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a man, and the heart of a man was given to it. And there before me was a second beast which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard, and on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the form of the ten horns. And while I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. And the horn had eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. And I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Here endeth the lesson. 
And it is quite a passage, and if we could just pray before I say, Heavenly Father, we ask that your word may enrich our lives, may guide our minds, and that we, by dedicating it to our hearts, may walk more with you. Amen. Um, I haven't heard that many sermons on Daniel 7, um, and I've never given one before, and I think it's very brave of you to ask an Ulsterman to speak on something quite so savage. Um, uh, but I want, before we get to the passage, I want you to imagine that you meet someone, you don't really know them that well, in fact you don't know them at all, but they tell you what's going to happen in 500 years' time. And they tell you in some detail. What would you really think? I'm not going to ask you to stick up your hands if you believe them. Um, you might think to yourself, well, I would. Um, okay, 500 years. It would be more interesting if you told me something that might be happening next week so that I could test it. Because we're all going to be dead in 500 years' time, so you can say whatever you like and no one's going to know. But imagine if the person then said, well, I'll tell you what I'll do. Your children, your grandchildren, I'm going to... Um, I'll tell you all their GCSE, A-level results, that they're going to get in August. Now, every single one of them is spot on. And then he goes on to say, oh, no, I'm going to tell you who they're going to marry and uh, when they're going to marry and uh, how many children they have and what their sexes are going to be. And all that comes to pass, exactly as he says. And then he goes on to say, and I'm going to tell you, these are the four best friends and this is the illnesses they're all going to die from. And these are the dates of their death. And slowly you watch and your life unfolds, and all of these things happen. What will that do to your view of believing what he said would happen in 500 years' time? I would suggest enhance your belief of what he said. Now, I want you to hold that thought in your head, and now we'll learn to turn to the passage, because um, uh, this, this passage, chapter 7, Daniel. Basically, most people read Daniel to chapter 6, definitely in Sunday school. You get to the lion's den and then you stop. You don't tend to take children onto these beasts. Because, in a way, chapters 7 to 12 are very, very different to 1 to 6. 1 to 6 is things happening to people and Daniel explaining it. Chapter 7 to 12 is like behind-the-scenes film. This is what happens to Daniel. This is what God does for Daniel, not what Daniel does for anyone else. And therefore, when you look at this, you can see, and we'll do a quick recap since this is the last one in the series, we remember the ambitious Daniel, because he was quite ambitious. Um, he wouldn't eat the palace food, and he said, trust me, we'll be the best. And they were the best. And Daniel 1, verse 12, the king talked with them and found none equal to David, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. And so they entered the king's service. Those last three, of course, are better known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So the four of them, the four friends, came top of the graduation into the civil service of Babylon, which was the greatest empire at the time. And then Daniel gets his big break. His big break is the king has a dream, and to be certain that the interpretation is correct, he won't tell people what the dream is. 
So you've got to dream is, and then the interpretation. And Daniel does it. And he does it, and as a result, the king says, um, this is just completely incredible. Surely your God is the God of gods. And he puts Daniel over Babylon, and at Daniel's request, he puts three people as his deputies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And that dream was the dream of the statue, and there was a sermon on that, and we may come back to it. Chapter 3, his three friends get thrown into a fiery furnace. Because um, it doesn't sound like Nebuchadnezzar's memory is that good. Because having just promoted them because of the dream, he then throws them into a fiery furnace. But they're miraculously delivered. And at that, uh, Nebuchadnezzar says, The people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are just their houses turned to piles of rubble for no God can save in this way, and they're promoted. Daniel pours another dream. Daniel interprets it. The king doesn't listen to it. He gets proud again. He's humbled, and when he lifts up his eyes, he says this, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven, and my sanity was restored, and I praised the Most High God, and I honored and glorified him who lives forever. Now we stop, because this is where Daniel 7 comes in. Daniel 7 is in the first year of the reign of Belshazzar. So it's before his feast. Nebuchadnezzar has died. And um, Daniel's depressed because things have gone really quite badly wrong. Nebuchadnezzar was getting closer and closer and closer to God. More and more believing in God. He praised God himself. He was kind to the Jews. He was promoting Daniel, and now Belshazzar comes, and we find out at the feast that Belshazzar has to be reminded, oh, we have this chap, Daniel. He used to interpret deems. I have no idea where he is, because Daniel's not an official anymore. He's demoted. And the people, well, Belshazzar is not, not remotely respectful of God, not like Nebuchadnezzar. He calls for the golden goblets to be brought and he toasts them in a drunken party and he's laughing with all the gods because we're told in chapter 5 and verse 4 they toast the gods of gold, of silver, of bronze, of, of, uh, of wood and iron and stone. Basically, it's one of those drunken things where they're just toasting whoever they feel like. Let's toast this, let's toast that. It's gone completely and utterly uncontrolled. This was what Daniel had given his life for. He thought he, he was special. He thought, look, look what I did. We got promoted. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were delivered from the fiery furnace. All these dreams I've interpreted, all these risks I've taken, what's it for? I might as well not have bothered. Babylon's just as bad as if I'd never actually been here and bothered to do anything. What difference have I made? And if we're honest, we can feel the same. When we hear about Ukraine, Afghanistan, Yemen, when we have a prime minister who's struggling to keep an ethics advisor, and when we have hearings in America about the previous president having to check whether or not he incited a crowd to lynch his vice president, you could be forgiven for thinking, why bother? Is anything getting any better? How many people really would rather not listen to the news at the moment because it's just so dismal? 
Well, it was worse for Daniel, because he'd been in the cabinet. And that is where the chapter and this vision comes in. This is the state Daniel's in, and God sends him this vision. And we know how he felt about the vision at the end, because we're told at the end of this chapter that he was deeply troubled. It deeply troubled my thoughts. My face turned pale, and I kept the matter to myself. That's the reaction of Daniel to what he sees in this chapter. Why? Why did he feel like that? Because everything that's in this vision, he's seen before. Um, I am asked for a slide. Can there, is there a slide that can come up? Um, is it in there or not? This slide is, there's the chapter 2 statue. Nebuchadnezzar, the golden head. And here we have in this, a golden lion. A lion that is stands up almost like a human being and is given the heart of a man. It's the golden head of Nebuchadnezzar. Then we have the bear with the three bones in its mouth and it conquers all. That is the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. And then we have the kingdom of Greece coming along. You'll understand how I'm saying all of this later. And the last, the, the grotesque beast the, with the ten horns like the ten toes. And all these kingdoms are going to come and they're going to go and a great stone comes and smashes the statue. That's what the dream was in chapter 2 that gave him his big break. That's the dream that God revealed to him. And these four beasts, as you can see, coincide with each bit of the statue. There's nothing new here. He's, he knows that these four kingdoms are going to come and he knows they're going to be destroyed and yet, in chapter 2, he was happy. Here, he is depressed. What is it that's depressing him? Well, he asks two questions. If you look on in chapter 7 of Daniel, he asks two questions. You can get rid of the statue now because it's a bit distracting looking at beasts and statues. Um, and uh, thank you. And, and, and in Daniel 7... Uh, he asks his first question, and it's really to check, look, am I right? Is this just a rerun of chapter 2? And in, chapter, in verse 17, he's told, yes, the four great beasts are four kingdoms that will rise from the earth. So he's, he's right, it is what I thought it was. And then he asks his second question, and his second question shows what it is that's really troubling him. He asks about the fourth beast. And he asks about the fourth beast because the statue was all very neat and clinical and almost academic. But the fourth beast is carny. It is truly and utterly indescribable. It is iron teeth. It crushes and devours its victims. And the bits of the victims that are left after being crushed are stamped underfoot. It's unlike any of the other beasts. And Daniel's question is all about this beast because this fourth beast 
In verse 21, as I watched, it was waging war against the saints and defeating them. And he is told this about the beast in verse 25 at the end, the saints will be handed over to him. The image we have in Daniel 7 is repeated in Revelation. If you look at Revelation 12, you will find the passage that we know that basically is what was happening in heaven at the first Christmas. We have the baby snatched from the mother and taken up into heaven before the dragon could attack it. And we have the battle um, in, um, between the angels and the devil, and the, angel, the, the devil is defeated, and it says, it says the, angel is, the, the devil is defeated by the blood of the lamb. That's in chapter 12 and, uh, and verse 12. And then verse, uh, verse, verse 12 said, sorry, um, therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. So that is what happened. The devil has come down to earth and he fury because he knows his time is short. And in Revelation 13, we have a beast coming out of the sea in exactly the same way as the beast came out of the sea in Daniel 7. And if you look at this beast in chapter 2, what are we told about it in, in Revelation? It resembled a leopard. It had feet like a bear. It had mouth like a lion. It had ten horns. And it had seven heads. And if you think the leopard's got four heads, and the other three have got one each, that's seven heads. And what you have in Revelation 13 is a combination of the four monsters in Daniel 7. And what are we told about this? We're told in Revelation 13 verse 7 that he was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. That's what we're told this beast can do. And in case you think this is all just Revelation horror, the person who speaks most graphically about what's going to happen is Jesus in Matthew 24. Jesus in Matthew 24, verse 15 says, when you see them standing in the holy, standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation, spoken about through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand how dreadful will be these times. There will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and it will never be equaled again. So, let's go back to my first bit. Do you believe this? Do we really believe this? Because it's a certain as the fall of each of those empires. I said at the beginning, if someone told you the GCSE results and all those things and they're all ticked off, we can look back and we can see, yes, those empires all fell. And this is part of the same prophecy. So before Belshazzar's feast, Daniel had another dream, and, and this is Daniel 8. Just that you know that you don't have to work out which empire it was and in this he sees a ram with two horns that cannot be defeated by anyone at all it just 
conquers everything to the north, the south, and the west, and until it's attacked by a he-goat with one great horn and is killed very quickly and defeated, and then just at the greatest power of the he-goat, the he-goat's horn breaks off and four horns spring up. So what's that about? Well, we don't have to conjecture because we're introduced for the first time to Gabriel. This is the first time Gabriel appears in the Bible. The one who will appear to Zechariah and to Mary appears here. And Gabriel comes along and says, oh, that ram with the two horns is the kings of Media and Persia. Chapter 8, verse 20. They're named. And the he-goat is named as the king of Greece. Now, Greece wasn't a country at this point. Greece was not united. Greece did not exist as a country in the 6th century BC when this prophecy was made. And it's the king of Greece. And that's exactly what happened. Because Belshazzar's feast, that is exactly what happened. On the 12th of October, 539 BC, Belshazzar was killed and the, the Medes and Persians take over. It is an archaeological, historical fact. And what is more as a fact is that the king of Greece, Alexander, the Persian Empire. And in 323, at the height of his power, he took ill and died in Babylon. And his kingdom was divided in amongst four generals into four different kingdoms. And it wasn't united again until the Romans came along. And this is named. Medes and Persians and the kings of Greece are named. This is what I mean. This is so accurate that most people looking at this prophecy are trying to say Daniel didn't really exist. He's made up. This book must have been written after these events happened. That's how accurate this is. So, when you look at this and you look at this accuracy, you don't really have much choice but to believe the rest of this prophecy. Unpleasant as it may be, because it is as certain as those things that have happened. And the next bit of this prophecy that we read after the beasts is this. I won't say it in a Northern Ireland accent, because if I did, you'd laugh, because it would be humorous, and it's not. There will be judgment. There will be a judgment day. The thrones will be set up. The Ancient of Days will sit there, and there will be a judgment. Now, that's not very popular for people to talk about anymore. When I was growing up in Northern Ireland, you couldn't get away from it. But it isn't very popular now for people to say, no, there will be a judgment and Daniel's vision sees that judgment. He sees it. It's in Revelation 2. Revelation 3 says the thrones will be set up. And 20 verse 11, the great white throne will be set up and the book of life will be opened in the same way here as these books are opened. But in Daniel's vision of the judgment, he also sees, and it's the first time it's mentioned in Scripture, and it's quite wonderful, the Son of Man. Jesus' favorite name for himself was the Son of Man. He called himself the Son of Man 68 times, far more than anything else, and no one else called him the Son of Man. That's the name he chose to call himself. And basically what he was saying was, read Daniel 7. Read Daniel 7, because that's where the Son of Man is. We just sort of skip over it. In Mark 8.31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be killed 
and at three days he would rise again. And if you remember, Peter rebukes him because Peter knows Daniel 7 and he's saying, hang on a minute, you're meant to be coming in the clouds of heaven. Or when he talks about his second coming in Matthew 24, 30, he says, the Son of Man will come in the clouds of heaven with great glory, exactly what's said here in Daniel. And when he's being tried by the high priest and the high priest can't get any charge to stick, he jumps down and he says, I charge you, tell, me, tell us if you are the Christ. And Jesus says, yes, it is as you say, but I tell you, in the future you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of God and coming on the clouds of heaven. Daniel 7. And when the high priest heard that, he screamed and yelled and tore his clothes, and the entire Sanhedrin said he deserves to die. They knew saying when he said the Son of Man. And when Stephen, the first martyr, he preached the whole of Acts 7, that huge long sermon, what really made them yell, put their fingers in the ear, rush on him and carry him out and stone him, was because he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. It's Daniel 7. It was a pivotal passage, and yet it's not one that we look at. Why is it pivotal? Why was it so useful for Daniel? Why is it so useful for us? Because if you look at the beginning of Daniel 7, all of this starts by the winds, the four winds from heaven. The four winds of heaven, this starts with God. God is in control. If you look, the beasts are all killed and some of them were allowed to live for a period of time. God never loses control. The world likes to think that everything was made out of chaos and it is slowly getting better. That is not biblical. The world was not made in chaos. The world was made perfect by God and sin has entered the world and sin is the problem. Yes, there will be progress. We see the progress to the thrones, to the ancient of days, and to judgment. So why are we surprised when we see these passages of what's happening in Ukraine, what happened on Capitol Hill, what's happening with the word truth in number 10, what's happening with corruption in South Africa, what's happening in Myanmar and China against minorities? Why are we surprised? Why are we on the defensive when people say to us, What's God doing? Our answer is, God made this world perfect. Putin did not invade Ukraine because God made him. Trump did not incite that crowd because God made him. It's man's sin. That is the problem. Because Revelation 13 tells us that all the inhabitants of the earth will worship this beast. All whose names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the Lamb that was slain before the creation of the world. We have a huge eternal picture there. A Lamb slain before the creation of the world is the salvation at the end of it. And that's, in effect, what's being said here because um, there's a book written by um, Graham Tomlin. It's his latest book. And he basically points out, he says, Western culture is built on the assumption of historical progress, which derives from the rejection of the cyclical nature of the pagan view of the world 
and echoes instead the timeline of the Bible, which envisaged history moving towards the kingdom of God. The problem with these modern myths of progress, whether the communist myth of a classless society, the capitalist myth of universal prosperity, or the technological myth that we will solve all our problems, is that they lack the Christian doctrine of sin, which always qualified human hubris that we were capable of building a great future for ourselves and the world without God. And we're falling into this trap that things are meant to be getting better. So what are we meant to do? Daniel was told things aren't going to get better. We read it in Daniel, we hear it from Jesus. What did we do? Well, what did Daniel do? We see it at the end of chapter 8. When he had his second vision, still before Belshazzar's feast, I, Daniel, was exhausted and lay ill for several days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. But what he did was he got up and he went about the king's business, which is exactly what we have to do. Appalling as this is, we have to get up and go about our king's business. The tasks that we've been given where God has placed us in the world. Daniel, we know what Daniel did, because now we understand why Daniel and the lion's den in chapter 6 is there, because this is later. And this is how well Daniel went about the king's business, because we read in Daniel chapter 6 that by Darius' time, he distinguished himself by his exceptional qualities that the king was planning to set him over the whole kingdom, which is what got them jealous. And we also discover he's loyal to God, he's praying three times a day publicly towards Jerusalem, and the king's so distressed he did everything he could to save him, and he's delivered from the lion's den, and Darius issues a decree that in any part of my kingdom the people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. So he had this depressing time, and he was basically told, yes, this is the way it is. Empires come and empires go, and he served Darius knowing that the king of Greece would destroy the empire. I have no idea whether he told Darius that. It doesn't really matter. But can you see that is what we're called upon to do? We're not to get depressed by the news. We're not to be surprised by the news. What we're to be is the kingdom of God here on earth. Because we shouldn't be so foolish as to fear all those horrors and terrible things and think that God is not in control. We pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it's our job to do that to the best of our ability and the power of his spirit. Our task is to be Christ's body here on earth, to step out in faith, giving hope to all and showing the love of God and spreading the values of God's kingdom here in the world. Charles Wesley was once asked what he would do if he knew that Christ was coming tomorrow evening. And he got out his diary and he read out his appointments for the next day. And that's the way that we should live. We should live in the light of the second coming. We should live in the power of his kingdom so that the world is a better place for us being here. But we should not be surprised and do not get suckered into the world's belief 
that things can only get better. Amen.